Hello, St. Lukers, and welcome to our Office Hours podcast of Your Week with St. Luke's. We are continuing the Gospel of John, and we are getting into, in our Office Hours podcast, Oliver, and why we chose this show, and a little bit of the history, and so we have some very special guests joining us. So could you introduce yourselves and tell us how you're involved with St. Luke's? Yes. Me first? Yeah, of course. I am Joe D'Ambrosi. I am in the cast of Oliver playing the role of Bumble, and I'm also the dramaturg for the production. I've also been a partner at St. Luke's for a little over a year now. Exciting. We're glad yes. you're here. We're going to get into that dramaturg thing in just yes, a okay, second. Cool. But first... Hi, I'm Steve McKinnon. I'm the artistic director here at St. Luke's, uh, which I direct our theater ministry and our contemporary worship as well. And I'm directing the production of Oliver. And how long have you been here, Steve? Oh, goodness. Um, about... 14 yep. and a half years yes. now. We're That's lo- like two dog lives. I know. We're the long timers here. That's <laughs> like, saying something, <laughs> you, you and I. All right. Let's get into, first of all, what is a dramaturg? Okay. Tell us what yeah. that is. So I don't even think that dramaturgs know what dramaturgs are. Fair. It's different for everybody, but the way that I describe it is an ambassador between worlds. So traditionally, if it's an already established play or musical, the dramaturg would be sort of like your historian, the person that kind of contextualizes the world of the play, the world of the playwright, makes everything make sense. But for our production, it is a play that has a source material, um, has source material in mm-hmm. Dickens, right? But then we're adding a contemporary layer. So my job is sort of to be the ambassador between all of those worlds, contextualize Dickens' world, contextualize the musical Oliver, and then also this contemporary setting that we're putting on. We are so glad. So you are kind of like, you've just been here a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you So tell us about your doctorate, too. Okay. You have a doctorate, because I, I mean, do. you and I could geek out and talk we a could. long time we about could. this. We could. We really could. So I have a PhD in theater history, theory, and literature from Indiana University. Um, I wrote a dissertation on the intersection of evangelicalism and theater in the 19th century. So this is all like very much in my wheelhouse. This is where we would geek out a lot. Yes, yes. Because my project was on the idea of theater as social resistance and discipleship. So like we have a lot to talk about, but we won't bore you with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, really cool and kind of a God thing that I, that my fiance and I landed in this church where I never thought that I would be able to kind of bring that experience to ministry. And here we are. That's so cool. So why in this show, Steve, did we need a dramaturg? Because um, we haven't used one before, right? Right. We haven't. Well, number <laughs> one, we found we were so lucky to have Joseph um, mm-hmm. in our church family now. And to be able to um, bring both of those worlds where we are bringing a new lens, a modern lens, um, and a contemporary take to this version of Oliver and sending it um, in our local scene of Central Florida today um, and highlighting some of our issues that are going on, which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. a little more. But um, someone to bring in as a resource, a, some guidance and insight for our cast. You know, we've got a cast of about 60 folk um, and ages, I don't know, eight through 80. Mm-hmm. And to really bring some history, some research. Um, Joseph made an amazing packet for us with links um, for everyone to really dig deeper and understand um, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and to give us tools so we can dig deeper. So um, really what I think Joseph's position has been integral in really opening those doorways for people to understand theater and understand how, it, how the worlds of literature and um, 
contemporary theater and how, how we can kind of challenge our audiences today um, through the version of the story we're telling. That's great. So let's get into that. So let's talk about Dickens' original story of Oliver. Kind of tell us about the history of what Dickens was writing about sure. and what was going on in the time. So uh, Oliver Twist was very personal to Charles Dickens. Uh, Charles Dickens had some experience in a workhouse when he was very young. His dad got into some legal trouble. He had some debts that he hadn't paid, so he was put into debtor's prison. Um, and Oliver had to work in a workhouse, basically, to make some money for his family. And he, as a chi child, was... Did I say Oliver? You did. I did, but I meant Charles Dickens, and that's what these <laughs> listeners uh, right, meant, right. yes. So <laughs> Dickens, he experienced that firsthand, right? Um, he saw how uh, children were treated in the workhouses. He, he saw how the poor in general were treated in these workhouses, and that really affected him in a traumatic way. And then, in his professional life, he became a parliamentary journalist, basically. So he would write about what was happening in Parliament in London. And in 1834, a new law came out called mm -hmm. the Poor Law of 1834, which specifically targeted poor folk in England um, and said that, you know, the upper class and middle class are sick of their taxes going to the poor. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the instead we are going to have these parishes turn into unions and create workhouses. And anybody who was poor, if you were sickly, if you were um, what they called insane, mm -hmm. if you were an orphan, you'd basically be forced against your will to be a member of these workhouses and to basically work until you died. It came to be that if you even asked for help, asked for any kind of assistance from the government, you were thrown into the workhouse. So people really had to hit rock bottom to uh, receive assistance because they knew what their fate was. So Dickens saw this. He, he resonated with it because of his own experience. And as a result, he wrote Oliver Twist, and Oliver Twist was written serially, which means that he wrote a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and it was published, you know, every couple of weeks over a period of two years. So his readership was really um, sort of intensely moved by it, and would uh, would come back, you know, week after week for the new edition. And yeah, it was it was Dickens' form of social activism. It was something that was very deeply personal to him. Right. It was like political commentary That's that right. people would see on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I've read that it looks like you. It, so his his childhood, he doesn't talk a lot about it. There's only like one author that really knows his backstory, mm -hmm. and that even wasn't much. Right. But it turns out, just within the like like is it the last five years or mm -hmm. so, they found out that he probably lived right next door to one of the biggest workhouses, yeah. and so he saw firsthand what these people went through. Mm -hmm. And my understanding in reading about the workhouses and the history is that it was it they referred to them as prisoners. Yeah. That that it was based on the prisons from France. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't a place of of refuge, like a homeless shelter. Yeah. It was literally you wore uniforms, you did this work, you couldn't leave, mm -hmm. and you were considered... You ate the same thing every day. Yes. And, um, and it's so fascinating because it was taken away from the church. So churches, parishes were trying to help. Mm -hmm. 
not always, you know, as we say, we struggle with today, churches don't always know the best way to help, but they were trying to. Mm -hmm. But then the government took it away from them and said, we're going to take your working places, places where you were giving people help, and we are going to unionize them and make them into government workhouses on parish property. Mm -hmm. So the parish still had some connection. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Which is sort of the intersection between my own character, because my character is the beetle of the workhouse. He is the, um, the ambassador of the church that works in the workhouse. So it's been an interesting thing to discover for my own self. So is the the person who works on behalf of the church, weren't they also, though, hired by the government? Yes. So they were just picked. They weren't necessarily hired by the church. Yeah. And so they could often be just as correct. Like a mascot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was another issue that Dickens had with the church because that wasn't necessarily widely known. And so you have this kind of mascot of the church that's supposed to be the ambassador of Christ Mm -hmm. and yet is doing the exact opposite. Right. Which is what he was also arguing about in A Christmas Carol, too, Mm -hmm. is really pushing back on this church Mm -hmm. for not doing the work of justice and mercy. Right. So why, how does the musical differ now? Because it does. I've read Charles Dickens' book, and it is the most depressing. (laughs) 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 Grueling, tough. Like, I think if I were reading it every week uh, as a serial, it would be easier to take in. But when you read it all in one sitting Mm -hmm. as a book, it is is rough. Yeah. Dark. And dark and hopeless. Yep. It is void of hope, and it shows the true circumstances that they were living in. Right. Um, and I think Lionel Bart, in creating the musical, um, tried to, I think, give it that lens of hope. Yeah. Um, even for characters. There's characters, in, of course, in the novel that we don't meet. Right. And some characters are combined into one mm-hmm. in the musical. Mm-hmm. character of Rose and Nancy are kind of combined into, into Nancy. and um, but even characters like Fagin, the way we see Fagin in the musical yeah. um, and, and his fate and ending leaves it up to interpretation. Right. Um, and honestly gives him some chance for hope and redemption if he so chooses. Right. right. There's a humanity. Like we saw if you watched Worship this uh, week before with Jim Harnish, we saw that with Ralph doing Fagin. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of, oh, there's a humanity. There's a struggle. But mm-hmm. in the yes. book... Nefarious, no, and, and, and then no hope for for certain characters, right? Um, where it, it, it ends just as poorly as, as it's lived out. Um, so definitely, I think the mu- the musical gives it a sense of somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. So you leave with what lesson can you learn from that and move forward. Where the book kind of is, like you said, being serially written, right? Um, kind of is so heavy that you want to know what's happening next, but right. but it doesn't have have that hope. Well, and it was a characterization of, like you said, social resistance. So here is someone who's using, honestly, and and what I would describe faith. I don't know if mm-hmm. if if Dickens would have described himself as Probably faithful, yeah. um, but I see it as a Wesleyan type of faith. Right. You know, here I want you to get involved and fix this. The musical is just meant for entertainment. Right. So what are we doing with it today? How are we telling this story, and why is it important for what we're going through today? So after, you know, our process of deciding musicals and our why, um, always leading with that, um, where are we as, as a church, as a community, um, as a theater community, mm-hmm. right, and the entertainment community of Central Florida, um, and a national community, how do we respond to what's happening in our world around us it is really our driver um, for what we choose, whether it be fun and comedic or challenging and heartfelt or, or mm-hmm. dark, 
um, right. and, and pushing pushing us to go out and take action. So this one, um, really looking around our Central Florida neighborhood of what's happening, um, particularly in our tourist corridors from I Drive down to 192 and the poverty situation that is going on with, with housing, um, socioeconomic division, mm -hmm. and in the problems that we are facing as a community um, that have been brought to a national level. Um, so we were a little bit inspired by, you know, the Florida Project, which is a film. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Please. Mm -hmm. um, which highlights families living um, in poverty, but supporting themselves and living in hotels and motels permanently. Right. Um, and But living really at a poverty level and these children growing up in that world um, in the dichotomy of the beautiful tourism the magic mm -hmm. and the wealth and money that comes into this community. And then these people that actually live here and make the community run and bring it to life and the disparity that they, they are living in mm -hmm. um, and how our young people in those, from those communities grow up and, uh, and the systems that keep, whether they keep them there or sometimes we can break free and escape. And I think the show itself um, really highlights that. And we found a lot of parallels, um, Jen, Pastor Melissa and myself talking mm -hmm. about it at first, just being, hey, what if? Mm -hmm. And what if we applied this lens? And not to change any of the dialogue. Right. We're still honoring Dickens' piece. We're saying London. We're not saying Kissimmee. Right. Right. But we are changing the theatrical lens of what we witness because there is such a parallel with the world Dickens was writing for. Right. And why. Right. And what we're doing and why we do theater mm -hmm. um, to challenge our audiences um, both our church family and our and our community at large um, to use theater as a tool to make us think deeper, to maybe open up some eyes to resources for people they can leave, and we're going to provide a lot of opportunities for folks to hopefully learn and dig deeper and maybe get involved. So today, um, the the theme for this week is is actually where is love? That's the whole series theme. But today or, or Sunday in worship and um, in this podcast, the song from Oliver that we're focusing on is where is love? And the scripture we're using is from John chapter six, um, where Jesus feeds the five thousand. Um, and John's story of the feeding of the five thousand is different in that the little boy shares his lunch. Um, where do you think this idea or concept of sharing mm. uh, fits with this question, where is love in the world? Start, you, want me to start? you start. I'll add. Okay, well, I think sharing can go both ways, right, for the receiver mm -hmm. and for the giver. But for Oliver, um, initially asking, please, sir, can I have some more? Mm -hmm. More what? And when we first theatrically meet the workhouse and traditional versions of Oliver, you know, there, there's usually a God is love um, sign above everything. And then Oliver searching through this w world, asking for more, and ends up singing Where is Love? It's, it's a song he sings when he is desperate, alone, isolated, fearful, and abused. Um, sings us Where is Love? But we, particularly being Christians, looking through that lens, if, it's, if the show opens and we see God is love, where is God? Right, and, and certain situations that we may encounter in our lives, and a lot of folks do encounter their lives, whether mm -hmm. it be through poverty, through systemic oppression, right. um, injustice, searching for that. So I think we also meet characters in Oliver who show love, mm -hmm. familial love, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, different ways, and relational love, and um, we are called, I think, to to hopefully 
reflect that and see that within ourselves through this experience of where is love, where is God um, for, for people and how do we maybe help stand in that yeah. gap and, and start a connection there. Um, right, because if we're not sharing that God is love in a physical, tangible way, people that are most in need are not going to find it. They're mm-hmm. going to ask that question. Well, where if God is love, where is it? Because I'm not feeling it. And yeah, we see it relationally, right, in the yeah. show. It's not necessarily giving more food. Mm-hmm. It's not giving a handout. That doesn't change it. That doesn't show yeah. God. Mm-hmm. But it's in Oliver's connection to Fagin's gang when he meets Dodger and being mm-hmm. taken in right. and finding a family for the first time, being given a second chance, you know, and then end up being adopted. And it's right. relationally, and it's how we can make an impact with our with our experiences that we share day-to-day with people, mm-hmm. right, or, or, thing, or ministries we're involved in and, and our... Relationships in life. Yeah, just yeah, just like I was going to say, just like God's love, you know, we don't always see that love at work, right? And and sometimes people are interceding on our behalf, and there are characters who show Oliver love without him recognize recognizing that that work is being done behind the scenes. Nancy is an example, right? Who essentially sacrifices her life for this child that she just meets. Spoiler alert. Sorry, spoiler alert, but you had like 200 (laughs) years to read the book, so. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting too, because I mean, scripture, we talk, scripture says it, and we talk about you can't share love until somebody's belly is full Mm -hmm. and someone has Mm -hmm. security. And so the people who are most likely to share the love are not the people that Oliver necessarily receives it from. It's the le- right. most least likely characters. And yet they give him the basic needs as well that he's never had before. Um, and so w- this is an opportunity, and we're going to talk more in the coming weeks with the cast and, and our missions people about how to get involved. But but what what is the point? Why tell the story today? Well, it's jarring to think about, you know, this play, this musical, having, you know, been inspired by the Dickens novel. You know, we see what happened 200 years ago and we're like, well, that's not our world anymore, right? <laughs> so then you add this layer and you recognize, and I think that people are going to come in and they're going to see the sign that says I-4 on the set. Um, They're going to see maybe a motel that they recognize and they're going to say, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. This is fun. Like, this is our backyard. And then it's going to slowly kind of hit them what, what we're doing with this show. And the fact that five miles from here, there are, there's a family living in a motel. And they are going to a public school just with their kids. Mm-hmm. And they are they don't recognize that those kids are homeless. You know, those kids that live in the hotels, they never make it known that right. they're homeless. They never make it known that they're different than, than other kids. So it's just going to be a wake-up call that you are living your life and that's fine. You know, that's awesome. That's wonderful. But then there are people that are maybe not as fortunate that are living in these motels right, right under our noses. So I think for me, that's the point. It's just kind of like a, oh my gosh, this is my community. What do I do? What do I right. do now? Right. And how do we connect and care to these stories that are Victorian era, right? And we're like, oh, those things happened. But then when you said it contemporary, you're like, oh, it is much more palatable, not palatable. It's much more real and hard hitting, gut punching. Um, when you see a modern day take on something like that, they're not wearing their crinoline and their, and their bonnet and they look like you and me. 
and they're experiencing the situation and the gravity of this situation. And like Joseph said, they, they look like you and me and your children and my children, right? Yeah. Um, but their situation is just as grave and just as crucial. So why? Why do we tell it, right? But it mm-hmm. hopefully is to wake people up to what's happening. And, and it's not just kids are hungry, right? It's systemic, Mm-hmm. Why are they there? You know what's going right. on, and look at our look at the world that we're creating, and the systems that we are all part of, right? Um, and from pay inequity, you know, all of it, and and there's a lot of things that we're doing to come alongside to to educate and say, hey, it costs for this one little hotel room, you know, how much does that cost? Twelve hundred dollars a month, right? right. For a, a studio, one one bedroom, and they have six kids in there. Mm-hmm. It's 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 eye opening in those those parents or that single parent, how much they have to work to mm-hmm. make that at a minimum wage. Um, so it's really, it sets it and it wakes you up. It kind of shakes you. I think when you start really realizing why, um, cause it's easier to separate. Oh, those are poor yeah. people. Right. Right. Yeah. They're not, you know, us. and yeah. see it 200 yeah. years yeah. ago. Yep. And it's not me and that's not our world now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the idea that sharing our lunch yeah. <laughs> it's not just about sharing our food. It's, yeah. it's sharing our resources, sharing our privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And that is love. And that, you know, when so that people don't have to ask the question, where is love? So thanks, guys. You all are going to be in the next few. Um, so we won't save. We'll save some of those questions for the next couple of podcasts. Keep coming back each week. You're going to hear a little bit more about Oliver and the Gospel of John and how through this show, we are making Christ incarnate and Christ's love for everyone incarnate as well. See you next week.